The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Merry Christmas. So I get the privilege of uh, opening up the Word of God to you on Christmas Day. This is really exciting. And I'm going to do something that I don't typically do, and that's we're going to go through just a number of biblical texts, mostly in the Old Testament. And uh, typically we just camp out on one text and maybe we'll turn to two or three at most as we're studying those texts to kind of illuminate whatever uh, passage we're on. But today, because I want to eventually land on the um, miraculous conception, a virgin conception and birth of Jesus, I want us to actually go back into the Old Testament and I want us to trace out two twin themes that you find in the Old Testament that prepare us for this miraculous conception and this miraculous birth of Jesus. And it's going to be a really simple basic point today. We're going to see that in the Old Testament you have the twin promises or the twin expectations that this Messiah, this King, this Savior is going to be both God and He's going to be man. And so we're going to trace those themes, that expectation in the Old Covenant uh, texts uh, in several different passages. So I just encourage you, you can follow along. I'm not going to be very long in each passage, or <clears throat> you can just sit and listen. I mean, it's Christmas Day, so you can just sit and listen and enjoy yourself and enjoy the Word of God. We are going to look at the Old Testament primarily, and then we'll eventually land in Matthew, but we're going to look at the Old Testament, how the Old Testament prepares us for a Savior who is both God and man. And we need to start in the very beginning, namely in Genesis. The first promise of a Savior you'll find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You could say that's the first gospel. In fact, that's how scholars have called it. They've called it the first gospel, the first good news, because it comes right after a really bad situation. So let's get our context. Genesis chapter 2, God create, has created the world, and now he's going to create the crown jewel of his creation, mankind. And he's going to place man, he's going to create the man first, and he's going to place him in the garden. He's going to give him an important command. And he's going to put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it, and he instructs him on how he's going to conduct himself in the garden. And then he creates a perfect complement to him, a woman to be his helpmate, to be his companion. And he brings her to him, and things are all going quite well, but it's not long into life as the first human couple that things go badly awry. Satan, being likely jealous of their place as God's crown jewel of the creation, is going to sneak in and tempt Adam and Eve, Eve first, to sin against God. See, God had given Adam a command to enjoy all the various trees and the fruit that he had given and created for his human creatures, and they are supposed to stay away from a very small, minute fraction of the creation, namely the, namely the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the first command was actually to enjoy everything. And, and actually, Satan's going to sneak in and actually twist God's word. And he's going to make it sound like God's first command was prohibitive. He's going to say this in, in chapter 3, verse 1. He's going he's to sneak up into the, the garden. And he's going to say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And that's actually, it might sound, it might sound like just a small change to what God said. It's actually quite a gross perversion. It's a gross perversion because God had actually said in chapter 2, verse 
15, he says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. The first part of the first command was to enjoy the creation. Isn't that wild? The first part of the first command was not prohibitive. But Satan twisted it to make it sound like God's second commandment, second part of the commandment came first. Because then God did say, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So all of that's yours. There's a small fraction that isn't. Stay away from it. Satan flips things around and says, actually, did God say that you should not eat of every tree of the garden? That's not at all what God said. God is, or Satan is, is flipping things to make God sound like a primarily a prohibitor of their enjoyment. Well, this pushes Eve back on her heels. Because when she responds, she doesn't quote God's word exactly right. She actually adds a little bit. So she's already back on her heels. She's stunned by this temptation. And then now Satan, having infused the air, you could say, with, with doubt about God's word and about doubt about who God is. Is he good? Is he primarily a prohibitor and a scrooge? Or is he someone who lavishes his creatures with wonderful enjoyment? He, she doesn't know anymore. She, things are becoming hazy. She's back on her heels. And so now Satan can step up and say, uh, when she quotes the God's word saying, We're, we will die if we, if we, if we actually uh, take from this tree, the serpent now can respond with a direct contradiction of God's word by saying, You will surely not die. It's, it's, it's too late now, Right? He's infused the air with doubt about who God is and about his word, and now he's going to hammer away and just flat out contradict God's word. You can take, you won't die. It's a direct lie. And so they willingly concede here. It says, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that is a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the both of the uh, eyes of both of them were opened. So at this point, Adam and Eve, God's first human creatures, have sinned against their creator, and they immediately feel defiled. They were naked and unashamed prior to this sin, but now they feel gross. They don't feel right. They can't look at each other. Oh, you're naked. Oh, I'm naked. Oh, this is not, this is weird. I don't, this is not right. This isn't good. It was good before. Everything was beautiful and wonderful until sin crept in. And defiled everything. And so what they do is they immediately make loincloths for themselves to try to cover their nakedness. This is man's attempt at religion to try to cover their sin. Well, that's not going to work. Not only do they try to cover their sin, but as soon as they hear God walking through the garden in the cool of the day, they split. And the language here gives the impression that it was every man for himself. Adam was supposed to stick close to his wife. In fact, there's supposed to be one flesh, and God had already told him that he was going to be the, the leader and the protector, the provider of this family. Well, after they sin, they go their separate ways, and Adam leaves his wife, and they go, they go hide themselves. The language likely here means it was they, they split up. And if you think that's bad enough, it only gets worse because then God approaches Adam to ask him, what have you done? What's, what's going on here? Where are you? What's, what's happened? What, what, what have you done? And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you to, to not eat? And the man said, Yes, I repent in dust and ashes. No, he said, No, actually. He, he blames his wife. 
rather than taking the blame, he blames his wife. So then the Lord goes to Eve and says, what happened here? And she says, Satan did it. So, so no one's willing to take the blame for their actions. No one is fessing up. Eve dodges responsibility. So here we are. God created, just, just think of this, God created the man and the woman to, to show his glory to them and to show his glory through them. And now they have utterly defiled themselves with sin against their creator. They were sinless, they were clean, they were whole, they were without guilt, walking with God and enjoying one another perfectly. Doesn't that sound good? Well, that was Adam and Eve prior to this defiling sin. So sin enters, the, enters in their, into their existence and defaces everything, ruins everything, you might say. God had promised they would die if they sinned. They don't die immediately physically, but you can tell by the response to God that they died immediately spiritually. They died on the inside, you could say. The way they respond now to their creator and the way they respond to one another is proof positive that they had died spiritually the moment they sinned. Physical death would come eventually for several hundred years for Adam But nevertheless, they had died spiritually. They are now well on their way to dying physically. And now sin is unleashed on the creation, ruining every relationship, infecting every motive, and setting man by his nature against his creator. So what does God do? Now, the chronology here is very important. Because again, we would be tempted, I think Satan would like us to think, first and foremost, God is the the curse maker, right? He's He's the one who curses. Immediately after something goes wrong, he curses. He curses his, his, uh, his human creatures. He, crea- he curses the, the people made in his image. That's what he does. Well, Satan would like us to believe that that's actually not what he does. First, the chronology here is important. What he does is first is actually curses the serpent. Satan had embodied himself in a serpent, and so now for the rest of our life here on earth, the serpent is going to be represent, representative of the curse that God had laid upon the serpent and Satan himself, saying this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The first thing that God does is he doesn't curse his image bearers. It's not who God is. It's not his first move. Satan would like you to believe that. That's not his first move. His first move is to aim at his enemy, Satan, and your enemy, Adam and Eve's enemy. What's the second thing he does? Now he's getting to the cursing part. Nope. What does he do? He's going to make a promise that he is going to remedy this situation. He's going to send a savior. He's going to send a human savior. Listen to what he says. Verse 15 now. I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring, speaking to the serpent, speaking through the serpent to Satan, and to her offspring. Okay, we're talking about offspring now. We're talking about a human creature coming from the the woman, a, a human being, an image bearer coming from the woman. He, that's the Savior who's promised here, he shall bruise your head. And this is language of, Total victory, to to bruise the head, to crush the head would be to defeat the enemy. But in the crushing, the serpent's going to get out a little bite here, and he's going to actually bruise the heel of this Savior. So already here, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the promise of a Savior who's going to destroy this enemy who had snuck in to the garden. 
but he's going to also be the suffering Savior. But here we are given knowledge of a human Savior. He's going to be human. He's going to be offspring of the woman. He's going to be a son of man, you could say. He's going to be a man. The promise given immediately after Adam and Eve die, or Adam and Eve sin, rather, will set the stage for the rest of the Bible storyline. Every verse, every single verse from this point on is intentionally moving us toward the victory described in verse 15 here. From this point on, every verse in the Bible is now moving us towards the victory of the crushing of the head of this serpent by this Savior. Indeed, the book of Genesis itself has multiple different passages that teach us that we can expect this coming Savior, this man who will save us. And you can turn over to Genesis chapter 12, 2,000 years later, out of absolutely nowhere. Out of nowhere. This is, this, is, this is God's grace on display. Out of nowhere, God's going to reveal himself to a moon-worshipping pagan who has no rights to God whatsoever, who has uh, uh, every indictment against him for being an idolater and for not knowing the true God. And yet God is going to graciously reveal himself to him and say, not only am I going to reveal myself to you, but I'm going to make you this grand promise. I'm going to bless every family in the world through you. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and following. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God is carrying on this promise of an offspring in Genesis chapter 3, now through the line of Abraham. It's going to be a man, and he's going to come through the line of Abraham. It's going to be offspring. It's going to be a man. But uh, a few years later in this man's life, in Abraham's life, this previously moon-worshipping pagan who now knows the one true God, Yahweh, God is going to give him another promise. Or you could just say he's building on the promise he gave to him previously. And he's going to say this. Several years later in uh, Abram's life, he says this. God, he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Oh, this is trouble. Because if God is going to bring that promise to bear in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we need offspring. And if he's going to bring it to bear through Abraham, Abraham needs offspring. And Abraham saying, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Quote, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, you, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So what are we to expect from uh, at this point here in Genesis chapter 15? We are to expect this saving offspring of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 now is going to be brought through this Abraham, or this Abram as his name is currently, will be changed later by God. And it's going to be his own offspring. 
This promise of blessing is then carried on through Abraham's descendants. God reveals himself to Abraham's son, Isaac. Then God renews the promise he made to Abraham with Isaac's son, Jacob. So you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob is going to uh, father 12 sons. And at the end of his life, in Genesis chapter 49, this end of Jacob's life, he is going to bless his sons. But Jacob is no mere, uh, he's not just blessing. He's no mere man in this sense. He's actually a prophet. He's acting as a prophet in this sense. He's actually going to prophesy about each of his sons' futures through this blessing. And there's one in particular that we need to focus on here. It's the promise or the blessing he's going to give to Judah, his son Judah. Chapter 49, verses 8 and following says this, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Verse 10, this is really important. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What is this language? Do you hear the promise of a coming king? Do you hear God kind of ramping up now the promise of what he's going to do for his people? He's going to have a king come, and this king is going to be an absolute ruler. The scepter will not depart from him. He will actually render the obedience of all the people who require the obedience of all the people, and they will render it to him. That's the promise now here, and this king is going to come out of Judah's tribe, Judah's line, this man's line. But he's still a long ways off. This king is still a long ways off. God must do something now. He must actually establish his people. Israel had 12 sons, and they're going to grow into more and more people. And eventually, after a few hundred years, Jacob's 12 sons are going to grow and grow, and they're going to end up in Egypt due to a a famine that had happened several years prior. And once they're in Egypt, they will have grown into a very large people, probably some estimate around 2 million, if you can imagine. That means Moses at some point was leading around 2 million people. I couldn't imagine what that was like. But they were suffering under the scourge of a, an Egyptian pharaoh who was wicked, hated the one true God, hated God's people. He was unfair to them. But God is going to deliver them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm out of Egypt, out of their slavery to this Pharaoh. And after this amazing deliverance, and after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God is going to then use Moses to to lead them both out of Egypt and up to the precipice of the promised land. So now God's got his people. He's got them established as, as as a people. Now he's going to establish them in their land. And that won't be the work of uh, Moses, that will now be the work of Yeshua, or Joshua, you could call him, whose name meant God saves. And he is going to use Joshua now to bring his people into their land, and now they are established in their land. And now being established in their land, he's going to now establish a king. Because remember, Genesis 3.15, we're looking for an offspring. Genesis 15, we're looking for an offspring. Genesis 49, we are looking for a king. 
We are looking for a human king. And so God is going to establish his nation. He's going to give his nation a king. And the most important king in that nation is King David. The most important. King David, and he's going to, God is going to make King David a massive promise. A promise regarding offspring. A promise regarding not only offspring, but now a king. Bringing these, these themes together. Offspring and a king. And God says this to David in 2 Samuel. He says, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, he says, When your days are fulfilled, David, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away uh, from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now David is going to die, so this promise can't be made for him specifically. This promise must be fulfilled in an offspring who's going to come after him, who, as we see here already hinted at, must live forever. If he's going to establish David's throne forever. But what I want to highlight in all of these texts, this is the one main thing I want to highlight in all of these texts, which is why we didn't spend a lot of time in each one. They all highlight the human nature of this Savior King. Israel was looking for a human king. And that was right, and that was good, and they should have been. Human offspring, the seed of the woman. Every text we looked at indicates that the coming Savior is a man. He is the woman's offspring in Genesis 3.15. He is Abraham's descendant in Genesis 12.15. And if we even went, we could have looked at Genesis 17. He is the king from the line of Judah in Genesis 49.8-10. He is David's son and offspring in 2 Samuel 7.12-16. So it makes sense that Israel will be waiting for a man, a savior, who would be born of a woman. And in fact... That woman, as we would find out later, was in the line of David, as was his earthly father, Joseph. So his, the right to his, the, David's throne is secured, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Because we need to ask the question, was this, that all, was this all that Israel was taught to expect? Were they only to expect a man? Another man like Abraham, or another man like Isaac, or another man like Jacob, or if you don't like those guys, how about the real leaders like Moses and Joshua and David? Is Israel to expect just another man like them? No, they're not. And this is, this is not hidden in the Old Testament. This is actually quite clear. It's, it's hinted at here and there, but it, be, it comes to a culmination, as we'll see in Isaiah. But Israel was taught to anticipate someone who is more than a man. A man, yes, but someone who is more than a man. There is solid evidence in the Old Testament that this Savior would be God himself. God must come down to his people and deliver his own people with his own hand. How do we know that? Well, I'm... Thankful that Pastor Cliff read Psalm 2. That was perfect because the first text we want to look at is Psalm 2. Just briefly again, Cliff covered a lot already, so that was really helpful in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we are now getting 
hints, more and more hints, that this Savior, this man, this king, this offspring, is more than a man. The kind, of, the kind of language here should send tingles down your spine. This, he's, he's not just a man. There's something more here. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take their counsel together against, his Lord, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. So you see a distinction here between Yahweh, the Lord, God, Almighty, and his anointed. But you're going to now see a bit of a blending now between their two attributes, which is remarkable. He who sits in heaven's laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Now hold on, just set that aside, wrath and fury for a moment there. That's the prerogative of God Almighty. Saying, as for me, I have set my king. So this is God speaking. Still distinctions here. God and king. I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. Now this is the the anointed speaking. The Yahweh, God Almighty said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So now this is the, the anointed speaking to God Almighty saying, you have given me all the earth to rule over. And not just rule over, but rule over with absolute power. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the promise that God Almighty made to his anointed. But already we've got some pretty significant statements about this anointed. He's going to have absolute rule over the world. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh. Serve the God Almighty with fear and rejoice with trembling. But guess what? Guess who you also should offer worship to? Kiss the sun or pay homage to the sun or worship the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. You you can't just read over that because we just saw that it's Yahweh's wrath who might be kindled in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Now this son whom you must worship and kiss and honor and pay homage to, now he is the one who wields wrath for those who don't follow and worship and obey. He is the one who has the prerogative to exercise wrath upon people. Now placing him alongside of Yahweh. But it's even more than that. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Who? In the Son. In the Old Testament, you're only to take refuge in one person. Who is it? God. And now the Son, you must take refuge in Him. So now here in Psalm 2, you have this bringing together this promised anointed one, this promised king, this promised offspring, who is more than a man. He is placed alongside the living God, the one true God, as His equal. Incredible. You see something similar in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And I love how Scripture just places these things right alongside of each other without even batting an eye. The Bible has no problem talking about Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man, perfectly God and perfectly man, truly God and truly man. No problem for the authors of Scripture. And listen to what is going to be promised here. This is a 
vision given to Daniel. And it's the vision of a coming king, right? Israel, from very early on, is expecting this coming king and savior who's going to deliver them. They need deliverance. And so God's going to give Daniel this vision. And he says this, I saw in the night visions. And behold, this is chapter 7, verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So he's a man, okay? And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. In verse 14, this is crucial. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, that may not sound remarkable to you, but that is, you only talk about, you only talk that way about one person. You only talk that way about God. And in fact, just previously in Daniel, God's kingdom was described in the same way as this son of man's kingdom. Verse 26 of uh, chapter 6, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his kingdom shall uh, be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this prophecy being made by a pagan king is, is describing God Almighty's kingdom the exact way that the Son of Man's kingdom is being described in chapter 7. It's a dominion that is absolute and over everything, and it's a kingdom that cannot be put to an end. And this Son of Man is someone who will receive glory in all the peoples and nations and the languages of all the earth will serve Him. This is worship language. This is God language. This is the Son of Man to whom we should be giving our praise and whom we should be expecting. But it's not just these two texts. I want, to, I want you to hear this quote from an old, old theologian. He just sums it up really, really nicely. He says this. It's not just these two texts. It's, it's, it's the whole Old Testament, really. He says this, summing up the Old Testament. He says, quote, Throughout the whole course of the history of Israel, we may trace this expectation of a Savior running parallel with the fundamental expectation of the coming God as ruler and king. You have anticipation of a savior who is a man, who is the offspring of a woman. At the same time, you have the anticipation of God coming down to save his people. And in various places, these themes being brought together in this anointed one, in this son, already in the Old Testament. For example, listen to how the Messiah or the anointed one is, is described alongside of the uh, of. Yahweh in the Old Testament. For example, Yahweh is described as the ruler over his people. Well, so is the Messiah. The Messiah is described as ruler over his people. God's rule reaches to the ends of the earth. The Messiah's rule reaches to the ends of the earth. God is called judge and father. The Messiah is called judge and father. God is the one who has the prerogative to destroy his enemies. The Messiah holds the prerogative to destroy his enemies. God must save his people. The Messiah will save his people. God is described as the one who will bring paradise and universal peace on earth. The Messiah is the one who will bring universal peace on earth. On earth. The coming Messiah is given the title Emmanuel in Isaiah 7:14, which means God with us. The Old Testament is so clear that this coming king is more than a man. He is God. Even the prophecy of the Messiah's birth in, in Micah 5, 1 through 2, 
tells us that his coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, or who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is a ruler in Israel, a man, yes, but one who is from old, from ancient days. Some texts, some translations say from everlasting, and that's legitimate because the point here is saying that this ruler who's going to come to my people is someone who has had an origin before time began. So throughout the entire Old Testament, there is an expectation that a Davidic king will come and deliver Israel from their enemies. But there's also the expectation that God himself will appear on the scene and save Israel. And I want us to go to back to Isaiah chapter uh, 63 to one of my favorite passages. It, my favorite verse here is in chapter 64 verse 1, but you have to read before then. Because Israel is looking to God for uh, mercy, and Isaiah is pleading and crying out to God for mercy. They have been under the scourge of other nations attacking and defeating them. They have had a very hard time. God has been judging them for their sin and defiance and disobedience. They've experienced exile. It's, it's just a horrible situation in the, in the land. And so Isaiah is pleading with God for mercy. And he's saying, look down from heaven and see. This is chapter 63 in Isaiah, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, and from your holy and beautiful habitation, where is your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion, are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. O you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways, and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? This was the situation that they were in, constantly disobedient to God and receiving their just discipline. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. God, do something. Chapter 64, verse 1. I love this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and save that the mountains might quake at your presence. We need you, not a mere man, to come down. We don't need another king like David or another leader like Moses or another leader like Joshua. As good as they were, they were sinful. They were not fully competent in all that they needed to do. They disobeyed in some ways. They were inadequate in many ways. We don't need a mere man. We need you, God, to come down. Would you rend the heavens and come down? And so this is the longing, and this is the anticipation of those who knew the scriptures in the Old Testament, which now brings us to Isaiah chapter 9, a classic Christmas text. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, without even batting an eye, is going to bring together all this anticipation into one passage, just like this. One passage, one person. Isaiah chapter 9, you know it, chapter 6, and then if you start... Singing the Messiah, that's fine. We were just at my son's uh, and daughter's performance, and they sang, they did Messiah, that was their performance. So now every time I read this, it's kind of hard not to get into the rhythm of the, the, the Messiah. So if that happens, forgive me. If you start singing, that's fine. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Okay? 
That's good. That's right. That's what they should be expecting, a king. But what is this king? Who is he? What is he like? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah, without any hesitation at all, brings together these twin expectations of a human king and of God himself coming in the form of this son. All together, all at once, without even batting an eye or adding any kind of qualification. Who will this son be who will rule his people? It will be God himself. So then the question is, How will God bring about this expectation? How will God himself come down and save his people as a man? How will he do it? How will he do this? How will he accomplish such a feat? How can God himself rend the heavens, come down, and give his life as a man? Just by asking the question, you already see the necessity of the virgin conception and birth, don't you? I do. Just by asking the question, how could God accomplish bringing both himself and this human king into the world? How can God come into the world as a man, as a human king and ruler? Well, you must have a virgin conception and birth. The virgin conception and birth of Christ is not a doctrine you can take or leave. It's not surprising that this is one of the first doctrines, the first truths of Scripture that gets set aside by those who begin to become a little wobbly on their belief in the Scripture. It's because this is the key to everything. Without this, you don't have the divine human Savior. You don't have God coming down to save His people. This is everything. This is the means by which God will enter the world as a man. The virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ. So let's now turn to Matthew 1, 18-25 to close out our time on Christmas Day. You know it. You know the passage. And if you don't, if you are unfamiliar with these things, I hope that it's been helpful for you to hear basically a cumulative case for the, the reality that Jesus is both God and man. But here we come now to the fulfillment of these twin expectations. And I hope these words now as you read them are are a little more illumined than they were before. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, in other words, before they came together in sexual union, and before they had opportunity to create a child through a natural process, before that happened, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful understatement. It's not described in any kind of detailed way. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful, wholesome understatement. Luke just says that she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. That's all. Just beautiful understatement. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But... As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Explain this to me, angel. How did that all work? No. He's like, okay, I got that. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Doesn't mean that God is just with this man, this mere man. It means, no, God is here as this man. Then when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son in order that there be no dispute whatsoever that this man who came into the world is no mere man. This male child is no mere man. This was, child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he called his name Jesus. Just consider for a moment all that's happening in this passage. The Holy Spirit had conceived the Son of God in the womb of Mary. But what does this mean? Does this mean that the Son was created and he began his existence at that moment? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now, there are some who profess to be Christians who teach such things, but it's not true at all. What does it mean? It means that the eternal Son of God, who had no beginning, the eternal Son of God was miraculously united by the Holy Spirit to a genuine human nature inside of Mary. It was a miraculous, non-sexual union of the divine nature with the, a perfect human nature originate, originating from Mary. So that this man is now perfect man, Full human nature, nothing lacking in his human nature. His body is human, his mind is human, his heart is human, his soul is human. And yet he is perfectly united with the eternal Son of God. And we know him as Jesus Christ. In light of the Old Testament expectations of the Davidic king and God coming to rescue his people, it is both fitting and necessary that the Son of God would come into the world through a virgin conception and a virgin birth. Now, people reject this story and they reject these truths because they'll say things like, well, that's not possible. And you're like, well, yeah, you're right. It's not possible humanly speaking. And that's the whole point. That is the miracle. It's outside the natural order of how children come into the world. The Son of God cannot take on a human nature through a natural process. It must, must be a supernatural process by which the Holy Spirit unites the eternal Son of God to a genuine human nature. Praise God that this can't happen through the natural process. That's the whole point. Don't apologize for it. Proclaim it. This is how Jesus, the Son of God, this is how the Son of God came into the world as a perfect human being. So at the moment of conception, the eternal, self-existing, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent Son of God took on genuine humanity. He grew in Mary's womb for nine months as his whole nature, human nature developed. Then after nine months, he was delivered to his earthly mom and dad, and he was given the name of Jesus after eight days. He would grow up just like every other Jewish boy, I think, as he was growing up. And if you saw a group of Jewish boys over there playing, I don't think you'd be like, oh, yeah, there's Jesus with the halo on his head. I don't think you could have been able to tell. You'd have just been one of the Jewish boys. 
He would have learned his father's trade. He would have learned the scriptures. He would have submitted himself to his parents. We know that he did all these things. But then around age 30, Jesus would begin a three-year ministry through which he would teach, his, he would gather disciples and teach others the way of salvation. But most importantly, he would die for the sins of his people. Why? So that he could deliver them from their sin. This is the plan. This is the plan all along, Genesis 3.15, that the offspring would crush the serpent's head by removing from him his only weapon. We saw this, for a, some of us saw this a few months ago as we looked at Hebrews. The only weapon Satan has is the fear of death. So Jesus is going to die on behalf of his people so that his people don't have to die so Satan can no longer wield the fear of death because you no longer have to fear death because death is now entrance into glory. So he's going to crush the, the serpent. See, when God placed Adam in the garden, and he, he told him that the penalty for his disobedience would be death. Therefore, if the Son of God is going to save his people, he must die in their place so that they would no longer face the penalty. And that's precisely what Jesus did. Just like that unblemished lamb that the Jews would sacrifice in their place to atone for their sins, Jesus Christ, the sinless righteous one, would be slaughtered for his people's sin. The death we deserve, he took upon himself. God's righteous anger towards us, towards me, towards you, was born upon Jesus Christ on the cross so that every sin, Upon the moment of faith, every sin that you have committed or will commit is completely forgiven because Jesus has paid the penalty. And then in a final crushing blow to Satan, the Son of God emerged from the grave, defeating death forever. Victorious over the death that Adam first brought into existence upon God's image bearers. See, the twin themes of the Old Testament are absolutely necessary. You need a Savior who is God because we need God to satisfy God's justice. We need God's righteousness to satisfy God's righteous requirement. So he had to be God. But he also had to be man in order to step into our place as our perfect substitute. So these two twin themes of God and man come together in the person of Jesus Christ so that you have in Christ the perfect Savior. And Scripture challenges us, it challenges you, if you are not a believer in Christ today, to find a God like that. To whom will you compare me, God says to Israel? Well, the answer is you can't compare the God of the Bible to any other God because every other God is defeated before the game even starts. Show me another God like Jesus Christ. Well, you can't. And so what do you do with this knowledge? What do you do with this knowledge of this God-man who has come to die for his people, who offers you full and complete and free forgiveness, who says, come unto me all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, who says, take my yoke upon yourself because it is light and it's easy. Why? Because he has borne the punishment for you. He has performed all righteousness in your place so that all that is left to do is to turn from your sin, change your mind about the things of God and, 
in, in your ignorance of who God is and turn to Jesus Christ and believe in him and receive the gift of forgiveness. So this Christmas Day, we praise God for the virgin conception and birth of Christ. This is the way the Son of God took on a genuine human nature, entered into our existence, and and died in our place. And he did it, just as his name testifies, to save his people from their sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for all of these glorious passages that prepare us for a Savior who who is a man, who is the offspring of the woman, who is the seed of the woman, who is the king of, from the line of Judah, who is the king from the line of David. But we give you praise that he is no mere man. He is the one true and living God. He is the Son of God, fully equal to the Father, ever existing, never having a beginning, self-existing, not in need of anyone or anything, the one true and living God, Jesus Christ, the only Savior, who if we put our faith in him, he forgives us of all of our sins once and for all, just like his death was once and for all on the cross. Lord, I pray that you press these beloved truths into our hearts on this Christmas day that we might leave here with joy knowing that our sins are forgiven. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.